Thank you, Rod. It is good to be back with you again today, um, especially even just listening to the worship. I remember one of the first times our church was introduced to that last song we sang. And the time we got to the chorus, um, there was just a spontaneous standing. Behold our God seated on his throne. It's taken right out of Isaiah 6 when uh, Isaiah had this vision of God. And there's a great sense of transcendence when we sing that, so I appreciate that. Also, I want to thank Rod for his ministry here. We've known Rod for probably, I think, like I said, a while, 12 years at least, somewhere like that, maybe longer. And uh, no one but a pastor knows what it's like to stand up here every week and have to stand in front of people and say something from God. That's a, that's a, you realize after a while, people don't come to hear you. They really come because they want to hear from God, and that's a special task that a pastor has, and I especially appreciate the faithfulness of Rod in doing that. You have a wonderful man who knows the Word of God, teaches it, and lives that, and so we're thankful for that. It is risky when you go away, isn't it, Rod? You don't know what's going to happen. I remember one time I went away, and I signed one of our guys on staff who was going to preach for me, and I thought that would go okay. And they came back and asked one of our elders, how did it go? And he said, John, he said, it was terrible. It was terrible. I don't know what happened, but he just did a terrible job of preaching. And so I went and asked him and said, hey, uh, I heard there were some difficulties last week. What, what happened with the message? He goes, John, you know, I, you know, it gets busy sometimes, and I got really busy, and I just didn't have time to prepare a sermon. So I hope you don't mind, I just went in your office and I brought one of yours out to preach it. And so that's what it was. So, so if you like this today, this is Rod's sermon. If you don't like it, it's mine, okay? We'll just have that arrangement. So hopefully we have that. But we do thank you for the privilege of coming. Now, I'm going to do something I've never, I hadn't done for many, many years in ministry, and that's preach through one book on a, in one Sunday. I think six or seven years ago, I came up with the idea, so, you know, I always preach expositionally. Just take the Bible and open it verse by verse, you know, chapter by chapter. That's how God wrote it, and I think that's how we should study it, and that's how we should preach it. But also, sometimes it's helpful to stand above that and look at the whole thing and see a whole book at a time. So we embarked upon a thing I just called Route 66, where we did one book every Sunday. And so through the whole Bible. That works fine if you're in Jude. That works okay. But when you get to books like, you know, First and Second Samuel, Revelation, Psalms, and you do that in one week, that's a little bit of a struggle. And uh, yet, as I look back on that time, the book of Psalms was one of my favorites. And so that's what we're going to do today. The whole book. So last week we did just a few verses. People in my church didn't believe that I could really do a whole book on one Sunday. But we're going to attempt it. We're going to go through it. And so in your outline, you see there's five points, and uh, I'll give those to you. In fact, if you want to look at it, the, the, they're not alliterative. We're just going to look at the first book is suffering. Then we're going to look at the idea of desire, then patience, then hope, and then praise. Why do we say that? Because the book of Psalms, the, the word, the Hebrew word is just tefillin, and it means praises. And then when they wrote what's called the Septuagint translated into Greek, that word was translated to the word psalms. And so it just means it just means praises. Literally, the word means the plucking of strings or something like that. So on a, some kind of string instrument they would accompany with is the background of the word. We know that the psalms is basically poetry. It's not poetry like you think of it. 
when in English we think of poetry, usually we like our poems to rhyme, and when it doesn't, it kind of doesn't sit right. It's like you've heard the poem, you know, roses are red, violets are blue, some poems rhyme, but this one don't. That doesn't make sense in English, right? We don't like it. We don't like our things to rhyme. In Hebrew, it doesn't rhyme. It's arranged by couplets or maybe even acrostic words, letters of an alphabet. So you'll notice as you go through the book of Psalms, it's even laid out different. It's not laid out like prose. It's laid out because they're laid out as psalms. They are literally meant to be sung. And so you go all the way through the book of Psalms, it's laid out that way. Now, many people also think that, that David wrote all the Psalms. And that's not true. David wrote, some people say, maybe 75 or something like that. So not even, a little over half of the book of Psalms are written by David. Written by a number of other people, and we'll talk about that a little bit later. It was also written over a thousand year period of time. <clears throat> We'll go through in the fourth book to see that there's a portion that was written by Moses, so around 520 A.D., or, or 1500 A.D., all the way up to 520 B.C., excuse me, B.C. So a thousand-year period of time this was written in. Now, the other thing, the reason I want to point this out is because one of the most important things to recognize about Psalms is it's broken into five separate different books. And if you have your Bible, you want to look at it real quick. I can just show you how you can tell this because in your Bible it's probably written. You'll see it right at the beginning of different chapters. Book one is chapters one to 41. And then if you go over to chapter 42, you'll probably see right at the top of it, probably see book two. That's an editorial remark, but it's pretty accurate. And so from chapter 42 to chapter 72, is book two, and then in chapter 73, you'll all see at the top there, it says book three. And then you go to chapter 90, in the beginning of chapter 90, you'll see it says book four, and then finally in 107, you'll see book five. Now, why is that important? It's important because the person who arranged this, probably Ezra, arranged all these different couplets and psalms that were put together but it seems pretty obvious the more you study, there's a sequence to this. And it's important for us to grasp the sequence if we understand, if we want to understand the whole theme and get something out of these separate books as we're going to look at today. The reason it's important is because the first two books, in other words, book one and two, <clears throat> so chapter one through chapter 72, all about David and his kingdom. And you'll see some different themes that, that flow through that. So books one and two, the first theme is David's suffering. So that's Roman number one, if you want to look at it. And then Roman, Roman number two, you'll see that's about his desire to serve God. So suffering and desire. And those are written primarily during David's kingship. Most of those written by David. So we gain something from that historical perspective. Books three and four were written after David's time. They were written in the time right before the nation of Israel went into captivity in Babylon. So it's all the struggles that the nation was going through before they fell. In 722, they fell to the Assyrians, and in 586, they fell to the Babylonians. And those books uh, record some of the struggles during that time. They have different themes. Because you can imagine as they're ready to go into captivity, they go back and say, how is this happening? And so the third book has the idea of patience. Patience. 
as we go through this time. And it ends with a very famous verse that says, how long, O Lord, do we have to go through this? And then the fourth book answers that with the theme of hope. Also during that time is even they're going to captivity, yet there's this element of hope. Save us, Lord, as it comes out of that time. And then the last book, you'll see the last, very last section, probably many people are very familiar with this, but it's the idea of praise. And that whole book was pretty much written after they returned from exile. So that historical perspective is helpful for us to notice because these themes are such important themes for us because they represent, I think, to some extent, all of our lives. Everyone sometime has gone back to the book of Psalms. Most of the time, if you know the truth, it's probably in what some people call the dark night of the soul. Sometimes it's in the middle of the night when it doesn't seem like anything else makes sense and our fingers start flipping through the Bible and they seem to find their way to the book of Psalms. It's also, I think, one of the most prevalent books that people read and ponder in hospitals, in mortuaries, at funerals, because they're searching for a transcendent comfort. So I will probably skip over your favorite psalm, and I apologize in advance for that, because obviously if we're going to do this whole thing, we're not going to hit every one of them. But we're going to try and hit those themes as we go, go through. So bear with me as we try and this overarching kind of over-the-top approach as we look through Psalms uh, today and try and get this overview of it. So the first one is the theme of suffering that we see as we go through. If you look in chapter 1, verse 1, it seems to set the tone for the whole book to some extent. And it's talking about the difference between a blessed man and the wicked man. That's the world, right? There's no in-between. Two types of people in this world, those who know and follow God through the person of Jesus Christ and those who don't. There's no demilitarized zone. Jesus said, listen, either you're with me or you're against me. So there's, there's no middle ground. You say, well, I'm waiting to make a decision. I'm, well, then you're against him. So that's what this passage is saying. It says this, how blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked nor stand in the path of sinners nor sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And then it goes on to explain a little bit more. In verse 4, he says, The wicked are not so. They are like the chaff which the wind drives away. <clears throat> Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sitters in the assembly of the righteous. So that theme, righteous and unrighteous, People follow God, people don't. You'll see that all the way through the book. So it's kind of like he's giving this overview. But then he also has a sense where it's not only individualized, but there's a universal universality to this. If you go in chapter 2, verse 2, it says this. And I love this verse in times of national and international emergency. My mind, when you hear a huge international conflict, my mind always goes back to this verse pretty quickly. It says, the kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us tear their feather, fetters apart and cast away the cords from us. In other words, let's get on about our business, and they don't even consider that God might have anything to do with what they're doing. <clears throat> but now here's the part I love. Here's God's reaction. Now, these are God's words. It's not mine. You know what God's reaction to that is? He who sits in the heavens laughs. 
it's not a laugh at derision. It just tries to point out, you know, that, and it goes on to say, um, he laughs and the Lord scoffs at them. So it's not a matter of making fun of them. It's just a matter of like, are you serious? Do you really think that I'm not in control? Do you really think that I'm not concerned? Do you really think that somehow I'm asleep? Do you really think that somehow what's going on, there's something I don't notice? You can't help but read through the Bible, especially the Old Testament, and kids have grasped what God does in history and see how this nation will rise against this nation, and God will use that nation and bring judgment against this nation, even his own people. And yet when they act quickly against God's people, God then even comes back in judgment against them. That's one of the themes you just see in this book, this longevity of time that we see. God looks at things going on in this world and he laughs. It's like, are you serious? Think that I'm not in control? Verse 6, it said, as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. We can't even take the time to unpack that. But when you see that, you know that there is a literal Mount Zion in Israel. And you know that God speaks of a literal kingdom that he will establish there someday in the person of Jesus Christ in the city of Jerusalem. That's not a euphemism. It doesn't matter where we're from in this world. I'm not from Israel. Some of you may have Jewish background. I don't. It doesn't matter whether you're from wherever, Argentina, Japan, some country in Africa, Australia, wherever. It doesn't matter. God's economy is going to be finalized in all the events going on in his city. The only city that's ever mentioned in the Bible is God's city, is the city of Jerusalem. It's a little sideline. I don't want to get too sidetracked here, but we were there about four years ago. We happened to be there on a tour that I was leading on the day after President Trump was there. The day before, he had met with 24 Muslim leaders in Saudi Arabia. And then that day after that, he came, the first president ever to come and visit the Western Wall in Jerusalem. Now, I don't know what you think politically of that, but that, that, that ties in to what God says here. I'm going to establish my king in Jerusalem. Read the book of Zechariah. It says he's going to come, his feet will descend on the Mount of Olives, and all that will happen at the end times will then proceed from there. That's what he's saying here. All you people going on about all this other stuff, listen, I've installed my king on Zion, and that's where I'm going to work, and he will. So it gives us this great, <clears throat> great sense of universal control over the things of this world. But then, after setting that context, David then begins to talk about some issues of real life. Here's where it now, after setting that, then he starts moving into Psalm 3 to some of these issues. This is probably during a time when David is fleeing for his life probably from his son Absalom. But you remember, David also had struggles with his uh, father-in-law, with Saul, who was on the king, the throne before David. We know that there were conflicts that, that had a lot to do with what you see in some of the Bible stories. And it begins in chapter 3 this way in verse 1. O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there's no deliverance for him and God. We're after him. We're going to get him. God's not on his side. David felt that. Now, we know that if it was Absalom, probably was, we know that that arose out of a number of 
out of control family issues that David went through. I'm gonna, I'm gonna kind of bank on the fact you know some of the stories because we can't go back and tell them all. But you might remember that David was involved in adultery and then cover that up through murder. That's quite a rap sheet for a man that's called after man after God's own heart. Then we also know they had a daughter that was raped by a half-brother, son of David. And then another brother came on and killed him for raping his sister. And then David, <clears throat> David wouldn't exercise proper discipline over him. Absent goes away into a far country and then finally comes back and sits on the outskirts of town. The son of the king, <clears throat> the son of the king, but still should have been disciplined. David didn't do anything. And you remember how Absalom then began to draw a group of people himself and eventually found a lot of people. He said, listen, David, you may think of some, but I'm greater than dad is. Eventually even took some of his harem and claimed it for his own, claiming the throne for himself and then chased his father off the throne, running through the desert like a scared little cat. That's probably where David was at right during this time. And yet during this time in this litany of suffering, David trusts God. Verse 3, it says, but you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory, and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. So despite the suffering that David went through, and we see this number of places throughout the book. So this is just kind of a little picture of part of the suffering he went through, and yet he learned to suffer. He learned to rest in him. During this first book of Psalms, there are two terribly significant Psalms right in the middle that give us an idea of God's answer to suffering. One of those is a graphic picture of the Messiah in Psalm 22. If you, if you read through Psalm 22, as in many of different Psalms, we'll point some of that as we're going on, you will find that there are words in there you, you think, how, how can this apply to anybody but Jesus? Just to illustrate that, Psalm 22, verse 1. I, I, I could give a test and I could answer, ask you a question, and I think all of you would answer it correctly. These words, Psalm 22, 1 says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here's the question. Who do we know said that in Scripture? Jesus did. He was quoting this passage in, in Psalm 22. That's why we call this a messianic psalm. It's an exact quote of Jesus on the cross. In fact, as you go through the psalm, you find that, that, that verses 13 through 18, that the New Testament quotes those verses over 15 times, giving us an understanding that David had some kind of a future understanding about this one who would come in answer to their own personal suffering, the suffering as a nation. So we have this as one of the very beginning of these messianic psalms that give hope in the middle of this world. And then, of course, one of the other most famous psalms, most significant psalm, is what comes after Psalm 22. Psalm 23. Maybe, maybe I would even say probably one of the most well-known and quoted psalms in the whole 150. Maybe one of the most quoted scriptures in the whole Bible. Haven't we all said that at some time? The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me to lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. 
He restores my soul. He guides me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Isn't that the passage that is often spoken in hospitals and mortuaries? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I don't know how many beds I've stood beside. People in the hospital, people in a rest home, people facing the end of life, and they pray these words. Yet you are with me. And then he gives this wonderful picture of the instruments of a shepherd. Your rod and your staff. The staff was the one with the curlicue at the top that was used to reach down and take a sheep sheep, that had lost its way and pull it up out of a crevice. The rod was like a club. It's probably this big with a ball of roots on the end. And that was a club that a shepherd got very good at aiming at marauders. It would take it and throw it with this club and Scare the marauders away. Well, it's protecting a sheep. David says, your rod and your staff, they come from me because of those, those are symbols of your care. You prepare a table before me, even when my enemies are all around me. You have anointed my head with oil as a sign of your blessing, and my cup overflows. Because of that, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Well, if that was the only passage maybe in the whole Bible, what comfort does that give to us? In the middle of the suffering that David sees. You can't help but read the Bible, and especially even this passage, and see that suffering and prayer coexist in the book of Psalms. John Calvin, in the preface to his commentary on Psalms, says this about the, the Psalter. By the way, John Calvin <laughs> believed that the only songs we should sing in church were Psalms. Now, I don't agree with him, but it just tells you that that's the elevated stance that the book of Psalms has always had. And so it's a great picture for us. But he says this, <clears throat> The Psalms teach Christians to suffer for God so that we renounce the guidance of our own affections. Can I just let that settle in? We renounce the guidance of our own affections and submit ourselves entirely to God, leaving him to govern us and to dispose our life according to his will so that the afflictions which are the bitterest and most severe to our nature, now listen to this, become sweet to us because they proceed from him. Anyway, I hope that you've come to that place in your life when you go through these dark shadows of life that you recognize that I look around and maybe I'm feeling beat up, left behind, ignored. But everything I'm going through is sweet because it's passed through the grid of God first. There's nothing that's happening to me that he doesn't know about. And he will not take and use that for his glory. Nothing. That's why somebody said, and I think said it right, is that a person who believes that can sleep well at night because they know that there's nothing happening to them that God hasn't brought. So there's suffering in this first book. Then we get to chapter 42, and we see something else begin to emerge. And let me ask as we begin this section this question, what do you really want out of life? 
I'm not asking, what do you think you should want? Because we can deceive ourselves very easily, can't we? But what do you really want? I'm just going to assume, I'm going to use an example. One of the things that we want about this time of day is lunch, right? So don't, don't fear. I'm not going to, I don't think I'm going to get into your lunch plans. So there are very temporal, very natural things. Yeah, I want, I want food. I want drink. I want to sustain myself. I get that. And that then goes beyond that. I want a roof over my head. And then to provide that, I need, I want to have a job. Those are all good things. The Bible doesn't have anything to say it's wrong about any of those things. <clears throat> but you see, even in those things, sometimes we can begin to worship them. What do you really want out of life? People begin to make idols of temporal things, the physical things that were out, that go away. You know, our houses, our cars, our electronic gadgets, all the, without realizing it, they can become idols. And what do I really want? That's what I want. Well, you might say, I'm not that crass, but they know it goes into something else. It goes into relationships. Some people, this which is one of the things we're trying to talk with young people about, some young people, and we've all been there, and say, what I really want is a husband. What I really want is a wife. And then they get one, and they say, what I really want is out of this. My friends, what do you really want in life? Let me suggest before we get into this that anything of a temporal nature you want will always disappoint. Always, always, always. Always. Even people. God did not make us to have our ultimate desire fulfilled in anything or any person on this earth. No one. So let's listen to what David says. David begins the whole book in chapter 42, verse 1, with a verse I think we also know. As the deer pants for the water brooks, so my soul pants for you, O God. <clears throat> my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? A couple of weeks ago, I was kind of contemplating this because I did part of this at a college camp I was at. I was sitting on the back porch of a house that I was staying in. It was on a steep hill. I was sitting in the middle of the afternoon, kind of, studying and reading a little bit, I heard a little crunch in the brush that went steep down by this house right behind us. And as I looked, there were two deer. Now in California, you know what kind of deer they were. I don't think I would want to, I don't even think I would call it venison. They were kind of skinny and scrawny, and you've seen the kind. Okay, but still, they were kind of, you know, tidbit, and kind of walk around like this. And then one of them came over to the hose bib at the bottom of the porch trying to find water. That's this picture. Every animal in the wild has to have water to live by. That's part of their, that's just part of their sustenance. Water and food, that's what he's saying here. As the deer pants for water, but they have to have it. You have to have water to live. That's how my feeling is towards God. That's my desire. That's, the, that's how I want you. Just like the deer has to have water. But then you notice he moves quickly from that sense to a sense of despair. 
he states his desire, but then he's very honest and he acknowledges his despair. It doesn't match his desires. In verse 5, he says this, Why are you in despair, O my soul? Now, wait a minute. I thought you just said your desire was for God. Why are you in despair? And why have you become disturbed within me? Frankly, this is one of the reasons why, that I think when you come to the Bible and say the Bible is an authentic book because the Bible talks about real stuff that happens to real people. Doesn't this happen? If you're a person follow, isn't there something, yeah, I want to know God. I want to follow him. And then I sometimes get in a state of despair. Isn't that what Paul said in Romans 7? The things I want to do, the things I don't do. And the things I don't do, those are the things I sometimes feel gravitated to do and I <clears throat> and I go back, back and forth and say, what's wrong with me? That's what David is saying here. But he explains a little bit, because in the following verses, he gives six specific reasons for this spiritual depression. Why are you in despair? <laughs> I've done a whole message just on these six things, so I'm going to move through them quickly, but these are profound. First of all, verse 4 why am I in despair? For I used to go along with the throng and lead them in procession to the house of God with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, a multitude-keeping festival. Can I just translate it real quickly? He said he used to go to church. That's what he's saying. But verse 6 then refers to the land of Jordan and the peaks of Hermon from Mount Mazar. In other words, he's far from Jerusalem in his running. He can't go to church. Can't go to the temple. So one of the things that's brought him despair is this removal, this isolation, this separation from Jerusalem, <clears throat> separation from the place where he worships God, separation from God's people, separation from an explanation of the word, separation from fellowship. Now, I know you can worship God out in the middle of the desert. I get that, but there's something about this corporate nature that God calls us to. What you're doing today, can I just tell you, is more important than anything going on in God's mind in the streets around this area around now. Do you realize that? I don't care if the A's are in town, giants are crying. I don't, it doesn't matter what goes on in places like this where people come together to worship God. In God's mind, he's more tuned to what goes on here than anything going on in this whole area. If you remove yourself, and I also know, I was going to say, if you remove yourself from church, I know that there are thousands and thousands of buildings in the United States that say church on the banner out in front that are not the church. I get that. Why? Because they don't even acknowledge Jesus Christ. You can't have a church and have people that are devoted to the bride of Christ. And that is his church. The bride isn't devoted to anything unless he's devoted to, she's devoted to the groom, which is Jesus. So that's a story for another time. But one of the reasons for his despair is this forced absence from the temple. I have to be away. I can't worship. Second one is the taunts of unbelievers in verse 3 and in verse 10. It says, the shattering of my bones, my adversaries revile me while they are saying to me all day long, where is your God? <laughs> have we not had discussions sometimes with family members or friends or neighbors? Oh, you're a Christian. Well, let's see. What has your God done for you lately? Even more, what's he done for me lately? Yeah, tell me about your God. David knew that. 
He experienced this adversary relationship with the people that don't acknowledge God. And in our context, maybe it's a prophet school. Maybe it's people at work. Maybe it's hostile family. Maybe it's unbelieving friends. Maybe it's the effects of a media around us that don't acknowledge God in anything that they write about. That can cause a sense of despair. Thirdly, there's memories of the old days and probably even a sense of failure. In verse 4, he says, I used to go along with the throng and lead them in a procession in the house of God with the voice of joy and thanksgiving, multitude multitude keeping festival. In other words, he's thinking back on what happened in the good old days. There's a sense of haunting about that. Maybe it's a sense of failure. Maybe for us, it's a sense of going back. So I remember the good old days. I remember Christmas when I was a kid. It's not like that anymore. I remember family reunions. I remember this time when I was happy, whatever. I remember when, and it's not that way now. So there's a sense of haunting. That's some of what David was feeling. My friend, sin, sin has a memory. And it wants us to live in those failures of past times. And it'll, it'll keep you there unless you understand forgiveness and confession. It'll keep you there. You'll, you'll think you're yourself identified by the sin that you've committed rather than know God's grace and say that you're a saint rather than a sinner. Fourth trial is just the trials of life. In verse 7, all the breakers and waves have rolled over me. That's just kind of a picture of all the setbacks, whether it's failing health or limited finances or failure to achieve something or family situations not the way you would like it to be. You go on and on. All the breakers and waves have rolled over me. Sometimes it just seems like a tsunami, one after another. And I just say, I can't come up for air because they just keep rolling on. Number five, the thing that can cause despair is blaming God. Verse nine, I will say to God in my rock, why have you forgotten me? You ever feel like that? God, why have you forgotten me? David felt that. Oftentimes we're isolated because of the consequences of our own sin. We may be isolated just because events don't go the way that we think they should. It doesn't matter. We can feel that way. God, why have you forgotten me? Then sixthly, <clears throat> 43, chapter 43 goes into the next chapter, verse 1. It says, Vindicate me, O God. I plead my case against the ungodly nation who deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. So these are the enemies who slander, steal, backstab, tell stories, gossip about us, spread rumors, on and on. So here's the deal. David says, My desire, I, I, I want, I, I, I long for God as the deer does the water brook but I despair in my heart. My friend, when we come to that contest, we realize this is what we want. I really do want that, but my life is filled with these kinds of things. We need to understand the only thing that satisfies is spiritual water. We have a great picture of that in John chapter 4. You may know the passage I'm referring to. The Samaritan woman confronts Jesus. It's interesting. Can't go into, but if you picture like Judea and Samaria, it's what's called the West Bank today. It's not the way, it's Judea and Samaria. Jews oftentimes would go around that area so they didn't have to go through where the Samaritans lived. 
We don't like them. So they wouldn't even walk through the door. Jesus, it says, went right through there on purpose. Went with people that hated him. And his people hated them. Stops at a well. Here's a Samaritan woman. You know the story. This woman's a three-time loser. In that culture, in the Jewish culture, she's a Samaritan, hated by the Jews. She is a woman regarded as no more than a piece of furniture. And thirdly, we know that she's an immoral woman. You think Jesus knew all those things? when he, I think he did. When he stopped and engaged her, asked her for a drink. And she says, uh, uh, a little awkward. How is that you being a Jew asked me a Samaritan even for a drink of water? You know the story. She thought that he was talking about water, water, H2O. And there was a part of his temporal body which was thirsting for H2O. I get that. And that was part of his own composure, comp- composition. But he answered, listen, Everyone who drinks of this water will thirst again. But Jesus said, whoever drinks of the water that I will give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. Now think of this woman. Think of what her desires were. We know from the rest of the passage, she's banking on number one that she's a Samaritan. My ethnic identity. Well, I know you guys, you worship over there, right? But we don't. We worship here. Jesus said, so? And then he asked her about her relationships. He says uh, something about her husband. She goes, well, I don't have a husband. And he said, you got that right. You've had five of them. And you're working on number six. How's that working for you? See, Jesus was able to expose the thirstiness in her soul that recognizes it's not my ethnicity that's doing it for me. It's not my relationships that are doing it for me. And she's drawn because Jesus said, I'll give you water which you'll never thirst again. Isn't that an incredible promise? Isn't that incredible to think that God will give us eternal life and give us water Something that reaches inside our soul, washes over us and cleanses us and gives us a sense of satisfaction that we can't get in anything else. Part of Christian maturity somewhere is coming to that place where we realize, okay, God has put me in this world at this time and I have to make a living. Have to, and there's nothing wrong with all that stuff, but all that stuff is just stuff. But it doesn't really reach inside and satisfy, my friend. Jesus satisfies. That's what David knew even though he faced despair. His desire was to know God as a deer panted for the water. Trust that's our desire. So we go to book three in chapter 73. Let me give you a little perspective first. These other ones, David is running, but here in chapter three, if you read through it, you see the scene turns kind of dark. Remember I said this is the, for the next two books, these are picturing Israel before they go into captivity. If you want to read what it's like, go back and read the books of Isaiah, Jeremiah, and then read Lamentations. Lamentations. (laughs) Lamentations is not a book that you read devotionally at night. 
Lamentations is a book of mourning. It's a book of weeping. And was picturing this time, <clears throat> this time in Israel's history. Nebuchadnezzar is coming to get them, taking them captive. He's surrounded Jerusalem. There's no food coming. There's no water from the book Kidron. The babies, it says, the, the milk in their mother's breast had drawn up. Even some of the people were cannibalizing their own children. It had gotten so desperate. That's the darkness of this time before they went into captivity. But chapter 73 begins this way. I love this chapter. I know I say, you go along and say, oh, this is my favorite. No, this is my favorite. No, th- well, this is one of my favorites. Chapter 73, verse 1 begins this. Surely God is good to Israel. <clears throat> to those who are pure in heart. Well, you read that and there's a certain sense he's affirming what is true, but somehow he goes on, you sense he's just moving his lips. Does he really believe this? Because look at the next verse. So God is good, but verse two. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling and my steps had almost slipped. God is good, but I look around me and I think, uh, I don't see it. And then for the next 15 verses, he says, why? I'm not going to take the time to read it, but you can go through and say, basically, I look around me and say, these people are fat and happy. They seem to be getting here. And then what? They don't acknowledge God. It's no big deal to them. They, 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 all the produce produces they get by with everything. They're, they're experiencing the good life. That's what I see as I look around our world. And I kind of wonder, God, where are you? What's happening? You're good, but look at all these people. Don't and look how they're getting on in life. It doesn't make sense. You ever feel that way? But here's where I love. Verse six, thir- 3 to 16 is, I was envious of the arrogant <clears throat> as I saw their prosperity of the wicked. <laughs> in other words, I almost think that David came to the place I'm wasting my time with God. Yeah, I believe he's there. I believe he's good. And I want to do that. But everybody else is enjoying all this stuff. And it doesn't seem like anything bad happens to them. And then this one of those places, I love one semi-smallish word that's in verse 17. It says, Until. Until I came into the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. In other words, what's he saying? Listen, I went through and I understood all the things that were going on in the world around me. I kind of got jealous because they all looked like they were fat and happy and doing all this stuff and having a good time. They're partying. They're prospering. Everybody's smiling. Everybody's laughing. And it seemed like they were going, God, where are you? That's what I thought of the world until... I came into the temple. So in other words, until I began to catch God's perspective of the fact that there's more than just the temporal temporal nature of life and there's an eternity to face. That's what happens when he came to the sanctuary of God. Then I perceived their end. Then I perceived that all the things in this world and all they're cracked up to be. Verse 18, it says, Surely you set them in slippery places. You cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors. Then he makes a national application of that concept in chapter 74, verse 1. He says, Oh God, why have you rejected us forever? 
Why does your anger smoke against the sheep of your pasture? Remember your congregation which you have purchased of old, which you redeemed to be the tribe of your inheritance in this Mount Zion where you have dwelt. Turn your footsteps toward the perpetual ruins. The enemy has damaged everything within the sanctuary. God, where are you? I want to acknowledge you, but in the sweep of things, I just don't see it. God's answer is this. Have a little patience. In that the first beginning chapter is what it was. You see all this? Go through life. Wait until you get to the end. Have patience. And that's what he's in. Reminder is for us. In chapter 75 to 78, the reminders of God's justice in the past, even though you as a people provoke God in the high place. In other words, even he had all these idols that you worshiped. Chapter 79 is a bitter lament of the fall of Jerusalem. In verse 1, it says, Oh God, the nations have invaded your inheritance. They have defiled your holy temple. They have laid Jerusalem in ruins. That's a, that's almost a misnomer. Laid in ruins doesn't begin to tell what they've done. Absolutely obliterated the temple and the holy city. It wasn't a euphemism. That's actually what happened. God, how can you allow this? How long will this go on? Is there any hope at all? Chapter 80 to 83, there's pleas for rescue despite their sin. Chapter 84, there's a desire to return into the temple, which is no longer there. Chapters 85, David said, 87, there are prayers for mercy, supplication, and trust. And in the last chapter of this book, chapter 89, there's an attempt to resolve his theology with life. In verse 1, he affirms God's loving kindness and his faithfulness. And then in verse 3, God answers with a very important statement. He says this, I've made a covenant. What's a covenant? It's a promise. It's a promise. It's not the promise we as parents make. Yeah, we'll go out and play a little bit later. Uh, Yeah, we'll go to Disneyland this summer. You know those promises. Well, yeah, if we can God doesn't promise like that. God makes a covenant. You know when God made a covenant? They made covenants in those days by taking an animal, cutting the animal in two, and putting two, the halves of the carcass, one on one side and one on the other. Then both people made the covenant would walk down the middle of it. Symbolizing, if I do not keep my word, my, may I end up like this animal. That was a covenant. There's a picture of God making that covenant several times in the Old Testament. Here he's talking about the covenant to David. Remember now, this is in the time before they went into exile. David's dead and gone. But he said, I made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your seed, singular. Paul reminds us in Galatians that that is a reference not to many seeds as a group of people, but seeds singular that's going to come forward in the Messiah in the person of Jesus Christ. One seed. Establish your seed forever and build up your throne to all generations. That covenant was begun in 2 Samuel chapter 7 when God made a promise to King David that from his line, somebody from his family would be on the throne forever and ever. Now, you go back to and you read all the kings of the northern tribes and the southern tribes, and they did this and they did that, and this father did this and the son did that, and they go, it's a mess. 
God said, I'm going to give you a king from the family of David forever. And no doubt then, as now, people are, what in the world is he talking about? Nobody's a king forever. But God said, this is something I will do. Verse 21, he talks about this long affirmation of the Davidic covenant, this promise he made to David. I have found David, my servant, with my holy oil. I have anointed him. In verse 23, I will crush his adversaries before him and strike those who hate him. My faithfulness and my loving kindness will be with him. And in, in my name, his horn, in other words, his power will be exalted. Verse 28, he says, my loving kindness, I will keep him with him forever. And, and my covenant shall be confirmed to him. In verse 34, he says, my covenant I will not violate, nor will I alter the utterance of my lips. Once I sworn by my, my holiness, I will not lie to David. I'm going to keep my covenant to David. Let me give you just a little clue to something fascinating as I go through and study the genealogies in the New Testament. You know how the whole book, the whole New Testament opens? Matthew, with the genealogy. Matthew 1 opens this way. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of whom? David. Jesus Christ had the physical right to claim the kingdom of the nation of Israel because he was from the line of David. Although those Old Testament passage, God said, I've given you a covenant, a promise. You're in this middle of the struggle. You're about ready to go into captivity of a nation. You need to have patience. You need to understand that I've got the long picture in mind. I've got the long haul in mind. You need to know I'm going to make this covenant with David something I'm not going to give up on. And yet we acknowledge, it goes on in verse 38, Israel brought shame on David and his covenant with God. And in verse 38, it says this, but you have cast off and have rejected. You have been full of wrath against your anointed. You have spurned the covenant of your servant. You have profaned his crown in the dust. Ends in verse 45, you have shortened the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. And so David responds with these words are almost agonizing. This is chapter 89, verse 46. Okay. I get it, Lord. How long? How long? Oh, Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Book three ends with the national aspirations of Israel laying in the dust. Sometimes that pictures our personal aspirations that we view as laying in the dust. And we wonder, how long, O oh Lord? I want, I want to have my desire for you. I want to follow you. But I recognize even my own sin sometimes prevents me from that. But how long? There's a lady named Marie Duran. She's born in France in 1711. She was what's historically called a Huguenot. That means Frenchman that embraced the Reformation, became a Protestant. She was born a Catholic. But as you know, during that time, many people embraced the gospel that was found in the Reformation message. In those days, you became a Protestant. Many of you died. Slaughtered. France was no exception. One of the things that happened there. 
they were holding a, her brother became a Huguenot pastor and they broke into their house one time, took him captive. <clears throat> her mother was put in prison. Her father was put in prison. She eventually married, raised by some family. Then when she was 18, she married a man by the name of Matthew, Sarah. They were both arrested. She was put in the Tower of Constance, which was this garrison, 130 feet tall, 70 feet across, walls 20 feet thick. Eventually became reserved for Huguenot women who would not renounce their faith. And it, it was a crude, crude building. Soldiers below in this round circular thing and they had a, and the prisoners above, they got their water and sustenance and food through a hole in the floor, never let out. They could get out if they did one thing. If they called a Catholic priest and simply said, I recant. I recant. That was it. Go home. Go free. Later on, however, they found scribbled on the wall in that circular cavern, resistere, something like that, which means the resistance. Marie Duran went in that prison when she was 18 years old. She wasn't released until she was 57. She would not recant. My friend, that's patience. <laughs> that's patience. That's why these pastors, God has a long view. We may not see it all. That's why chapter 4 is so important. Chapter 4 begins a message of hope in chapter 90, verse 106. First of all, it does something really unique, and this is something many people don't understand. He's answering the question at the end of the previous book, How Long, O Lord? Now he begins to give an example to show how long. The reason that we, I say it's unusual because it's an overlooked part of the book of Psalms. Many people don't realize and that the book of Psalms, some of them are written by Moses. Moses, say circa around 1500 B.C., Moses wrote Psalm 90. His prayer on leading the exodus of the children of Israel from Egypt parallels what was going on or going to happen with the children of Israel coming out of captivity in Babylon. So what is happening when Ezra puts this together, these writings here, he was saying, how long, O Lord? You need to know that God answered your people before when they came out of slavery in Egypt, and you need to know the same God is the same God that's going to deliver you from Babylon now. Almost over 500 years later. That's a long period of time. Chapter 90, verse 1 and 2, praises God's eternal nature. It says, from everlasting to everlasting. In verse 3, it talks about the temporal nature of man, however, that we're just from dust and a thousand years in your sight are like yesterday when it passes by. We go by such a short period of time. We that have grown a little bit older and have the signs of our white hair and all the things that go on with growing older, we're like, man, it goes by fast. God's not that way. Verse 13, he has a plea for mercy. So teach us to number our days that we may present to you a heart of wisdom. Do return, O Lord. How long will it be and be sorry for your servants? That's the plea that Moses gave 500 years before. Then the chapter goes on, gives several signs of hope. In chapter 91, verse Five, it says, you will not be afraid of the terror by night. In chapter 92, verse 1, it says, it's good to give thanks to the Lord. 
But in verse 6 to 8, it says, A senseless man has no knowledge, nor does a stupid man understand this, that when the wicked sprouted up like grass and all who did iniquity flourished, it was only that they might be destroyed forever. Do you get that? God somehow allows the stupid and the people that rebel against him to rise up so he can show his justice. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. In chapter 103, David makes a connection overtly to Moses. He said, he made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the sons of Israel. So he's reaching back again 500 years to show God's long haul of history. Verse 9, it says, he will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. Isn't that amazing? Do you realize that Christianity is the only religion that doesn't judge people just by their sin? God's a God of wrath. God will judge sin. Do you want to be judged by your sin? There's no way I do. I've got enough sin still rattling around in me. I, 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 don't, want, I don't want to be judged by sin. Some people want to plead for God's justice. What they want, they want God to be just all those other people out there that are sinning. God, you should go and get them. We say, why didn't somebody do something? Which really ultimately means, God, why don't you do something to punish those people? But like the old proverb says, when we're pointing at somebody else, the thumb is pointing back to us. We want justice there. We don't want justice here. You know some I don't want justice. Do you want justice? Yeah, I get it on this. Earth. I want justice. You know, I want mercy. I want forgiveness. I want to know I'm restored to God, not because of who I am, but because who he is. That's what David was asserting here. How long you need to know that he won't strive and he won't judge us according to our iniquities. One of four gives a vivid poetic praise of God's totality in all of creation. You read it and you just end up amazed at how God is in all issues talking about the continuity of creation. In Psalms 105 to 106, he repeats his enduring promises. He has remembered his covenant forever. Verse 8, he has remembered his covenant forever, the word which commanded to a thousand generations. Now look what he does here. Long haul, he does this. The covenant which he made with Abraham, that's over a thousand years before. thousand years. And his oath to Isaac, Abraham's son. Then he confirmed it to Jacob, Abraham's grandson, for a statute to Israel and an everlasting covenant. And the rest of the chapter reveals God's promise to Joseph. So through four generations, then he jumps to Moses 500 years later. What's he saying there? Listen, friend, God's covenant is made available to all of these people thousand years back. Now I have patience, but have hope. Chapter 106, verse 47 says, Save us, O Lord our God. Gather us from among the nations to give thanks to your holy name and glory in your praise. Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, from everlasting even to everlasting. And let his people say, Amen. Praise the Lord. What's he asking? He's asking for salvation. (laughs) Isn't that what we all want? We want the hope. We want the hope that somehow God doesn't deal with me according to my sin. Of course, the New Testament is filled with examples of the fact he doesn't. I pointed out last week, we know that also from Genesis chapter 22. First place, the word worship is, is used in the Old Testament when Abraham went up and offered his son to be sacrificed. They said, God will provide a lamb. 
My friend, God has provided a lamb to bring hope to this world. My son-in-law's, should I explain this right? My son-in-law's sister-in-law, so no relation to me, but to my son-in-law, her name's Christine Moutier. She's a, she was a psychiatrist who got a degree from UC San Diego, medical degree, and then for a while she was the dean of students medical students at UC San Diego. I don't remember how, maybe almost 10 years ago, I don't recall, eight or nine, something like that. She was asked to become the medical director for the American Foundation of Suicide Prevention in New York City. You'll see her on CNN, ABC, a number of newscasts in that capacity. She was out a couple of years ago and I had lunch with her and we were talking about different things. I said, Christine, she's a wonderful Christian woman. Shouldn't mention that. Um, I said, why did you give up this prestigious job at UC San Diego to become head of a medical director of a suicide prevention organization in New York City? He said, because I saw so many of my colleagues in San Diego committing suicide. You're kidding. You mean students? No, I mean students all the way up to doctors, professors, people had it all going. So many committing suicide, I just had to do something. And I, I couldn't get my head around that. You're talking living in San Diego. <laughs> one of the, you know, that's a pretty nice city to live in. One of the premier cities in the world. Living in San Diego, you have a medical degree, beautiful weather, prestige, money, everything you want, and you take your life. So much so that one of your colleagues wants to go and become a head of a suicide prevention organization to help people talk through their issues so they don't take their life when they lose hope. My friend, do you see the implication of what the Bible does in giving hope? Save us, O Lord, and knowing that he will. He has. He's reached out. He's given everything he can to make salvation available for us. What a, what a cause then for the last book. The last book is Praise. From Psalm 107 to 150, we have such a we have such an inferior concept of God. You ever see the movie Sandlot? I know you're wondering where you get theology from this, but trust me, just a little bit. Movie Sandlot, a bunch of kids. It could have been my life. They're playing baseball on this old Sandlot, and there's a wall on the outfield, and you hit the ball of the wall, and the beast gets the ball. It's a big mastiff dog. Well, uh, one day they're playing, and the only guy that can really play is Benny, and Benny hits a ball, and it knocks the cover off the baseball. Well, the other new kid in town says, well, I've got a baseball at home. So he runs home, sneaks into his dad's study, takes a prized baseball that he has on this little trophy thing, and takes it off, takes it, now let's go play baseball. Well, Benny proceeds to be Benny and hits that ball over the wall to the beast. He goes, oh, no, what's right? He said, well, you've got to give that ball back. What do you mean? It's just a baseball. We'll go get another. No, you don't understand. It's signed by somebody named Baby Ruth. And he goes, Babe Ruth? He goes, yeah, what's the big deal? Who is she? And the kids in unison, they go, the Sultan of Swat, the great Bambino, the King of Colossus. You don't know who Babe Ruth is? My friend, many people do not know who God is. 
they think he's some kind of, I don't know, what is that? Weak, willy guy standing up the plate, striking out, baby Ruth. When we understand this God, we come away with an amazing perception. The only response then is to praise him. That's why the praise begins this chapter, this whole book, giving some overt symbolism of the coming Messiah in verse in chapter 106, verse 47, it repeats the thing we ended in the last book. It says, save us, O Lord, and gather us from among the nations to give thanks to your holy name and glory to your praise. Now here we are 90 years later in this last book. 90 years later. And he's done that. He has done that. He's brought them out of captivity. Read Ezra and Nehemiah and see how that happened. God even used this man Cyrus that 40 years, 140 years before that, they didn't know his name, but God and Isaiah said, I'm going to have a guy named Cyrus be my savior that's going to bring you out of captivity in Persia. And that happened. Amazing story. He had done that. 107 then says this, Oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good, for his loving kindness is everlasting. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom he has redeemed from the hand of the adversary and gathered from the lands from the east, from the west, from the north, and from the south. God, in miraculous, he brought them together and pulled them out of these lands, brought them back to the national presence in their own land. That's, that, that's like, I don't know, that's better than the last day of school, right? That, that's better than getting out of prison. We're going home. God has restored us, given us our land back. That's why in Psalm 108 to 110, it broadens the scope of God's deliverance. It explains the future deliverance that's more than just a deliverance of land. It's a deliverance of the hearts in this coming Messiah. In Psalm 109, I'm not going to take time to read it all, but you can just go through and read and see how many inferences there are there with the, the suffering of the Messiah who will come and pay for their sins. 109.22 begins this way. I was afflicted and needy, and my heart is wounded within me. I am passing like a shadow when it lengthens. I am shaken off like locusts. My knees are weak when fasting. My flesh has grown lean without fatness. I've also become a reproach to them. When they see me, they wag their head. Help me, O Lord, my God. Save me according to your loving kindness. These are the pictures in the word of Jesus on the cross. You read through them and say, who in the world else could this apply to? It's a picture of the suffering of the coming Messiah. And yet he doesn't leave it there in Psalm 1010. It's also thoroughly messianic. It refers to Jesus as one of the most quoted passages in the New Testament. These events were never experienced by any earthly king. Psalm 1010 verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord. Now that's an incredible statement that's just loaded with weight. God said to God. Is that some sort of, God said to God. That's a divinity statement about who Jesus is. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. According to the order of Melchizedek, you understand that Jesus was that priest in, the, in 1 Peter chapter 2. You are a priest. You're a priest. Theologically, just like the priest in the Old Testament. 
You go to God personally. You don't have to go through somebody to go to God. You go to God. Credible picture. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings to the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fell them with corpses. He will shatter the chief man over a broad country. He, he will drink from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Psalm 118 is another incredible messianic psalm in verse 17. It says, I will not die, but live and tell of the works of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Who can that be? It's Jesus. The psalm then ends, I think, with almost like a group of instructions about how do you sum all this up? First of all, is to remember the law of the Lord in Psalm 119. Remember that passage, the word law or statute or commandment is mentioned in every verse but two in that longest chapter in the whole Bible. So all the saying is remember this, hold this up. No other book compares to this. Hold this up. Make this close to your heart. Keep this close at hand. Spend at least as much time reading this as you do watching that little thing in your hand. At least. Remember the law of God. Worship him, Psalm 120 to 134. These are 15 psalms of ascent that were given to them. And they were called psalms of ascent because the children of Israel read to them. You see, they begin to recite those every year when they go up to worship God in Jerusalem. I've been in Jericho a number of times. You go down to Jericho, the Good Samaritan story was given. It still looks like I talked to a bus driver one time ago in the back way, and they won't go again because it's still just as treacherous as it was back then. But you go from Jericho up to, you go up to Jerusalem. It's still the middle of the desert. And they got in the habit of reciting these psalms as they ascended from the, one of the lowest places on earth, came up over a 17-mile hike up to Jerusalem. As you come up to Jerusalem, from the eastern side, you come up and you see the temple in the distance. I just think it's almost like Pilgrim's Progress. It's almost like coming up and viewing heaven. I think that's what that's like. Psalms of ascent. As you ascend up to Jerusalem to worship, they would repeat these psalms. Remember to praise him. This is the third thing. In Psalm 135 to 36, it includes what's called the great Hillel. 136 contains antiphonal, his loving kindness is everlasting. That phrase is in every verse. His loving kindness is everlasting in every verse. His loving kindness is everlasting. His loving kindness is everlasting. Remember where you've come from, Psalm 137, verse 1 says, By the rivers of Babylon they sat down and wept when we remembered Zion. Remember the sinful life that God has rescued you out of. Remember that you've come from Babylon. Now you're ascending to Jerusalem. Remember that. God delivers. Remember God's promises to you, Psalm 138 to 145. It's the second section of the Davidic Psalms, probably written in response to the Davidic Covenant. Remember to trust God in all things. In Psalm 140, David prayed five prayers. He prays for his protection. He thanks God for his sanctification. He prays for help. He prays for deliverance. He prays for rescue and prosperity. And he concludes with thankfulness. Is it any wonder that the last four to five 
chapters in the book of these five hallelujah psalms all begin and end with these words, praise the Lord. My friend, I've done a very, probably bad job giving you the whole perspective of psalms. If you could spend the time I have it getting to the end of this, I got to the end of this and, and it almost ends up in tears. The Lord's loving kindness is everlasting. Praise the Lord. He is not stymied by your situation. He's not troubled by the things that trouble you. I have a friend that <clears throat> I've known for over 40 years. I first met her when she drove in our parking lot in a brand new Corvette and she had her license plate. Vet before 40. And her husband gave her a brand new Corvette. That really wasn't her. It didn't fit her. Wonderful Christian lady. Several years after we left our first church there, they moved to Texas. Then two years moving to Texas, Carol's husband Rick died of cancer. I talked to her, great loss. You can imagine, wonderful Christian guy, outgoing, just solid man, died of cancer. Two years later, she's sitting in a Bible study with a group of women. Somebody comes and knocks on the door with an ashen look on their face. You need to come home quick. What happened? Your son, Kevin, which is killed in a motorcycle accident on his way home from work. Two men in her life. Three years later, she got the word that her youngest son, Dane, was dying of leukemia. Three men in her life. She told me once, in fact, is this in the tail end of the book on jurisdiction, her story, but she said, you know, when I got to that place, I told God I was going to stop talking to him. That sounds kind of reasonable, doesn't it? God, I'm going to stop talking to you. But he said, then several months went by, and I began to contemplate and read Scripture again. <clears throat> so I came to a place where John the Baptist was in prison, ready to get killed. And he sent messengers to Jesus saying, go and check out. Is he really the one? Is he really the one? Is he worth me believing in and going to my death believing in? And he was. Then he, she also went to the passage, remember, where Jesus is teaching the disciples. And this is interesting. Sometimes people think that the answer today is draw big crowds. You know something? Jesus never intended on drawing a crowd. And said so the crowds left him. When Jesus began teaching hard, they left. And Jesus looked at the disciples and said, you guys going to leave too? And Peter said, where would we go? We don't have any place to go. My friend, that's where we're at. We're going to leave? Where would you go? Wonderful place to have this book to tell us this is where we go. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you, Lord, that you have given us such an extensive, wonderful depiction of who you are so that we can understand who we are in relation to that. We praise you, Father, because of your goodness and knowing that your loving kindness is everlasting. We assert that again, even in the middle of the struggles of our days. We thank you that you haven't changed. We thank you that a thousand years is just like a day to you. We thank you that mankind comes and goes across the stage of history, and yet you never leave and you never change. 
So we thank you and we praise you for your goodness to us. We pray this in your name. Amen.